When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel lawyer and current big law media attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Paul, it's back from summer. We're back in the regular almost swing of the year. It still feels like things are still lingering a bit from the holiday weekend. We got the U.S. Open going. I think people are slowly pouring back in here. Last episode, which was, we we took Labor Day weekend off, but last episode you said it was the end of summer. And then this past week was just like summer on steroids. And (laughs) it's funny you mentioned the U.S. Open. So normally the U.S. Open, the first part of the tournament is like end of August. And it's very difficult, like conditions, the heat, the humidity. And then in September, when you get towards the, the semis, the quarters and the finals, it cools down because it's September. And this year, it was the end of August was actually a little bit chilly. Yeah, relatively yeah, it was like sixties. And then this past week, Medvedev actually said, "Eventually, someone's going to yes. die." And in, yes. in these conditions, he couldn't. Even, he said he couldn't even see the ball. He was just playing on instinct. But the U.S. Open's been phenomenal, despite all that. Between Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, tennis this summer has been phenomenal. The U.S. Open's been awesome. It just feels like there's more people watching it. And by the time this is recorded, obviously, we'll know who the winner is. But I've watched almost every single match. I mean, well, it'll be Djokovic. I'm hoping Medvedev wins. Okay. I just like his whole vibe, his whole vibrato. I love I love Djokovic too. Don't get me wrong. I just kind of want to see Medvedev win. I guess we'll find out soon enough uh, who wins, and I want to see Coco win. But I think this U.S. Open, it just feels like generally, I'm feeling like a pop. Like it just feels like more people are watching it. And I don't know if that's because of guys like Alcaraz and women like Coco. And there's like this whole new like bunch of young kids that are Dialed coming in. up. Ben Dialed in Ben Shelton and Djokovic totally. Um, I, I loved how he ended. Yeah, that was pretty badass. But it generally seems like there's a lot of young blood. There are a lot more American players now. There's a lot more like personalities. I like all the new kids coming up and we haven't gotten like the viewer viewership numbers like from TV yet. But the attendance. Well, yeah, ESPN hasn't hasn't, hasn't released, released it. this year's numbers. But you're right. I mean, I think tennis is popular sport. Maybe not top four in in the U.S., but it's having I think a resurgence. Numbers for 2022 were up significantly from 2021. Yes, I think that yes. trend's continuing. And then the other thing we're seeing a lot in the media space, at least in my day to day, is you know the impact of the strikes is that there's more emphasis on sports content. There's more emphasis on reality content. Yep, greenlighting that type of stuff. 
studios and, and content producers looking for that anything that's not union that can be made right now, I think is more popular. And so that's also part of it. But it's been great tennis. It's been great tennis. And, and to your point, yeah, like there's not really that many. There's no movies out right now that and usually I have a good pulse on do I want to go to the theater right now? There's nothing in theaters. There's really no sh new shows that are out. People are watching tennis. Uh, just to give some stats, Flushing Queens, the attendance record, almost close to 202,000 fans coming in three days, over half a million for the first week, and which broke both records. Like in terms of like the first time they went over 200, the first time they went over 500, they broke like for the first six days, they broke each six day attendance record. And so much so that the platform clearly is a big platform that the semifinal with Coco and uh, Makova was halted because of climate protesters. Knowing that so many people are watching tennis, climate protesters were at the match. And I think one person super glued their feet to the floor and they're basically bringing attention to fossil fuels. They had nothing against tennis. They just said that, hey, this is a really big platform. We want to take advantage of it. Well, yeah, I mean, the you want to be seen. And uh, the heat and humidity is like, it's a real thing, man. Like they shifted the World Cup to December. A lot of marathons are going off at dawn or midnight now. You know, how you deal with the heat and humidity is a big challenge for a lot of these summer sports. I think part of it is it's inherently part of the test is doing it in and succeeding in grueling conditions. But at the same time, we don't want people to die dying. Right. Yeah. So how do you give them water breaks? So yeah, tennis is having a moment. It's going to be an exciting final. By the time this episode comes out, we'll know that it was Djokovic and Coco, but we don't know <laughs> I, I do now. hope Coco wins. It would be pretty cool. I don't know if, who the youngest was to play a final, but I know she's the youngest since Serena to be in a semifinal. American. Amer uh, youngest American. Yes. Um, yeah. And because yeah. uh, Radicani was pretty young. Right, 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 right. So that would be pretty cool. So yeah, I, I, I'm going to be bummed out next week when there's no tennis to watch. So got to find something else. I guess. Well, I'll get luckily, football. football starting this weekend. So <laughs> yeah. for those who didn't know, that's one way to pass some time. Let's shift gears a little to a sadder story. Joe Jonas and Sophie Turner announced that they're getting divorced. Yeah, man. Joe Jonas on September 5th filed for a divorce in Miami Dade County. And then they released a joint statement on Instagram the next day saying that it was an amicable breakup. When he filed, he said the marriage was ir irretrievably damaged uh, and he wanted joint custody. They just sold their $15 million home in Miami. And it's been leaked through the media or through Jonas's camp, whatever, some his PR team, that one of the maybe underlying causes is that Sophie Turner I guess he was criticizing or there's some there's some stories that she wasn't maybe the most dialed in or, or focused mother and she wanted to party. And I think that narrative was probably planted to help put a positive spin on this for Joe Jonas, because if you look at it objectively, he's been touring this whole time. There's a big age difference. But really, the Internet and social media have just taken that narrative and just flipped it on its head and said, Hey, you know, how dare you? Like, this is like unfair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mom, it's mom shaming. Yeah. And, and Sophie Turner, by all accounts, hasn't said anything other than their joint statement and probably is a great mom. I mean, we don't know, but Jonas has been the one that's been on tour, basically the majority of their marriage. And some are even saying that maybe the marriage was kind of doomed from the start because they're saying that Sophie got a shut up ring. You know, in contrast to Priyanka Chopra, it seemed like Joe was never really that into getting married to her. Part of the reason why we're talking about this is essentially these are two, like they're entities at some, like they're businesses. Sophie Turner was on the 
Best show of television. Yeah, Sophie Turner was one of the biggest shows ever. She's loved by many. Joe Jonas is in one of the biggest bands in the world. To your point, they're constantly touring. They just came by New York. They were they're doing a stadium show. So look, musicians are musicians, man. You're a good looking dude. I'm not saying anything, but you're a good looking dude in one of the most famous bands in the world, and you're touring constantly. Like that's got to be tough. And you know, I didn't know that she was 25 years old when she got married. 23. She was 23 when she got married, and she's 25 now. 27. They've been married for four years. Okay, yeah. I thought they were married for, oh, four years, sorry. I thought they were married for two years, but they have two kids. Yeah, man, 23 is really young to get married. I'm, I'm sorry, that's just- I know. mean, that was more common back in the day, but she said after the the first night that they met and hung out that she was in love like instantly and like deeply in love, which sounds like something a person would say. And he'd been in a lot of relationships, you know, Taylor Swift, Demi Lovato, Ashley Green, Gigi Hadid. So, this guy's a I mean- Playboy. Well, like you said, I mean, if you're a pop star, Disney Channel star, you're going to have <laughs> yeah. a lot of fans, opportunities. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you're not into monogamy, then maybe, you know, things are not going to end well. But Sophie's a super cool person. And, you know, she hasn't really had anything since Game of Thrones that's been noteworthy, but she's very young. And apparently she's been, you know, a great focused mom and they're very private about their kids. I just think it's interesting, this narrative. Yeah, that, the mom shaming, um, shaming narrative. He didn't think she was a good enough mom, and that's just been just completely like destroyed by the internet. Yeah, it's kind of cool that the internet did something nice for a change, which was come to her defense. Because now all, I, I was just checking on TikTok, and there are all these videos surfacing of her interviews where she talks about being a homebody and her stuff with uh, Macy Williams, where people love them as a duo, Aria. So look, I, I think there's, hey, here is the PR spin for our team. And then it's nice that community spread internet is coming in and saying like, hey, like let's change the narrative on this. I think it, that is, it is a very interesting point. I mean, it is, it is sad and it's a story that, you know, it's probably not the first or last time we're going to hear this. You know, she's made a lot of sacrifices. She relocated from UK to be with him in LA and then eventually Miami. She had the kids, the, the bond between a mom and her infants and toddlers is different than, dad and he's been touring so the fact that he like wanted to end it it's really hard to put a spin that's positive for him on this and to conclude on this just a quick fact for people who don't know that year 3000 song by the jonas brothers is actually a cover by the english pop band busted a lot of the american fans don't know that and they think they wrote that song just throwing it out there take it how you will yeah so sad story with the uh, Sophie and Joe Jonas announcing their divorce. And we actually, our next story is about one of Joe Jonas's exes, Taylor Swift, who apparently he broke up with over the phone and it only took 27 seconds. So Mesh, episode 230, we talked about Taylor Swift's record-breaking or potentially, I mean, I guess it's up there with Beyonce, record-breaking tour, Eras tour which some have said helped the U.S. avoid a recession. Anyway, uh, Taylor threw another huge left turn by announcing that her heiress tour is going to be turned into a concert film, which is going to be released theatrically for four weekends in a row starting in mid-October. And this was a huge announcement because she did it basically her own way, completely bucking like the normal trends of the industry. And she's doing it with AMC. AMC's a distributor, but they're also the exhibitor. They're going to show it in AMC theaters, but they're also going to use non-AMC theaters. And it's a huge ticket-selling phenomenon. 
uh, because tickets are like $19.89 for adults and $13.13 for kids. It's very clever. And studios are shook because they used to kind of be the only game in town, yeah. right? They had all this leverage over the exhibitors saying, well, if we're not making movies, then your real estate is basically not going to be monetizable. And here we are in the midst of a SAG and WGA strike, and Taylor Swift is releasing a concert film, and it's going to sell out theaters for a month. Yes. So some studios are shifting their release dates, like Killers on the Flower Moon is probably going to shift. Equalizer 3 might shift because they don't want to go head-to-head with Taylor Swift. Well, here, here's the thing. It's, you know, not, not only is it the top two, potentially number one selling tour of all time, everybody wants to see it. Smart enough, they filmed it, they're going to put it in theaters. I went on Fandango and I tried to get tickets for the first weekend. Gone. Like I was there like within the first few hours of this announcement. I'm a Fandango user. It broke records on Fandango. It was the best first day ticket seller of the year so far. $26 million in advance sales in one day. They sold, I think, within they broke the record within three hours. The previous record was held by Spider-Man No Way Home, which had 16.9 million. That's a nice little gap there. This is really incredible because she could keep this out in theaters longer. You know, what happens if there's a streaming deal kind of similar to when Hamilton went on Disney Plus, you know, yeah. during COVID. Yeah. We're seeing this more and more within gaming too, right? Like on like within Fortnite, you have the Travis Scott concerts, all these digital concerts, but to put it in a theater, I actually was really bummed out that I might not be able to get tickets to this thing. Here's how it's different than I think the Fortnite concerts, which are essentially free to attend, right? This one you have to pay 20 bucks. It's in person, whereas it's not virtual. And I think it's really smart for a lot of reasons. One is you're letting more fans get access to the show than could attend the LA shows, right? So instead of spending a couple thousand bucks to take your family to see Taylor Swift, if you can get tickets live, you can spend 80 bucks and take your family to do it or whatever. Also, it's capitalizing on the fact that there is a dearth of content being released in theaters right yeah. now. And she was able to film it while she was doing her shows in L.A. Yeah. at the end of August. And it's great for AMC because they're trying to branch out and become more than just an exhibitor. Yeah. So it lets them launch their fledgling AMC entertainment arm. So there's a lot of good things about we'll it. We'll pop their stock, too. Yeah, well, of course. I mean, it's like dark days when you're a theater and there's no th new movies yeah, coming yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. When you're a theater chain and there's no movies coming uh, this out. This is clever. So it's directed by Sam Wrench who also actually directed a Billie Eilish concert film and a Lizzo concert Which film. Which is great, yeah. I haven't seen it. It's beautifully done. It's going to be a little under three hours, so I guess it's like half an hour shorter than her concert set, which probably makes sense because there's less, you know, they're going to cut some of the, uh, you know, wardrobe changing the, the, and the, the delays. Yeah, yeah, wardrobe changes, yeah. But, you know, for me, and I think we've talked about this, I think live streams of concerts are generally not as exciting as as the real thing. And even if it's free, like a lot of people, it's like hard to keep your attention. But what she's doing is she's really building on the community and saying like, wear your outfits. Well, watch with an audience. Watch with an audience, dance, bring your wristbands. Like the whole theater is going to be packed with Swifties and it's going to be like a concert. We saw that kind of phenomenon. Now, granted, Barbie was a movie, but there was like a community inspired by it. You know, people dressing up, people you know, coming in groups, making it like an evening outing. I agree. Like obviously in person's better. But I do actually really love watching concerts on like previous concerts. I used to love rewatching the unplugged concerts. If the production is done well and you're watching it with a group of people, it can be a lot of fun. So I think this is a really great experiment. They've already sold, like it, it's going to sell out. It's going to be very hard to get a ticket right. to one of these things. No, you're right. It's all about the production and the experience. And I think certain concert films can 
live on and be a legitimate entertainment experience. But just live streaming like one camera on your computer screen is not the same as like no, being in a theater agreed. Agreed. with your friends. Agreed. Yeah. And like, cause like you're in a theater, you're getting multiple angles, just different shots. I think different than just if you're watching a stage at Coachella, right? Where like it, right. the production value is not there. Yeah. So I'm, I'm super curious to see how it performs. I did try to look at tickets. I ended up like looking at a Sunday night at 1030 and there was like a few seats left. I didn't want to watch it on a Monday, but I think I might have waited too long. It, it might be pretty tough to get a ticket in New York right now. Yeah, you might have to get out of New York to see this, which is crazy <laughs> because it's it's not it's like you would think it, there would be a theater that would have over one of the four weeks in a row that would have a seat. But well, that, that, it's like me it's like me flying to Argentina to get a uh, to be able to get a ticket to go see her show cheaper. I'm gonna have to go down to like Virginia or something to watch this in the theater in in some town. Well, good for her. It's amazing. Really is. Right, let's take a quick break and come back in with a media update. So, Mesh, this this past week was the Goldman Sachs Communicopia and Technology Conference, which is a great conference. They do it annually, and this one was in San Francisco between September fifth and September seventh, and it's a great conference because you have heads of all the biggest companies in the industry that meet with investors and talk about the trends that they're seeing, the challenges, the solutions, upcoming projects and things that they're excited about. So it's a little bit salesy, it's a little bit analytical, but it's really a great place to meet and get a sense of like where the industry is heading. And so obviously right now we're in a time of disruption. We've talked about that all summer long. You know, we have strikes, we have carriage disputes, the media business. It's There's um, a resetting of the market in terms of pricing for television rights and sports rights. There's a transition in all kinds of different things. And it's like, where do we go from here? And I think that's why the conferences like this are really helpful because no one has the exact answer. There's no crystal ball, but like there are some things that people that are running these companies are expecting and are looking forward to and maybe some solutions to these gaining problems that we're seeing. We've been talking about this for the for really since we started the show. What are they going to do in terms of keeping up with content, repackaging things, getting people to sign up for all this stuff? Like I, I have lost track really in terms of subscriptions are just not enough. And I'm I'm now even realizing like in this time of not really having anything to watch, I'm like, oh, like, do I actually need some of these platforms like or should i just like should i turn which is what all the streamers were concerned about right they're like well how long until people stop paying social media wise the one that i think that is actually getting more and more credit is apple tv plus i guess when no one has anything to watch they're like oh apple tv actually has some good shows there's silo there's invasion is invasion good I kind of wanted to see it. I haven't seen it yet, but I want to see it. And I started Silo and Silo's good. And they just announced a few other movies. There's a show like Godzilla monster type show coming out. Hijack was good. Which we Hijack about. was good. And like whether they're like critically acclaimed, they're good shows. Like it, it goes back to the H the earlier thing on HBO. HBO just put out for the most part good shows. And it seems like Apple is going down that Root with movies and shows and they have the money to do it. I feel like they're going to win on that. Right. But nothing's been yes. made yes. in the past other than finishing things in post. Nothing's been made for like the past four months. And that's the other issue is like if this thing keeps dragging, there's going to be a lag. Like, I mean, studios aren't making content 
years and years and years in advance. So even Apple, whoever it is in the scripted game, if this strike doesn't resolve itself, there's going to be some serious consequences in terms of their ability to keep churning out content. And so Dave Zaslov, who we've talked about, the head of Warner Discovery, he made his hay in Linear, running NBC and then Discovery. And he spoke at Communicopia and said that he thinks streaming is going to have to embrace bundling the way Linear did. And bundling just as a way to sell products to people is a really beneficial thing if you're a consumer and if you're a producer, right? And so, I mean, I think there is some truth to that. Yeah, what's an example of that? So like the cable bundle, right? Like if you had um, Spectrum or Comcast, you would get 150 channels or 200 channels for 80 bucks or 90 bucks or 100 bucks a month. And so that was like, you get more content than you could possibly watch, but everyone gets a little bit of something that they like. So you can like nerd out or if you're super into sports, you get sports. If you're super into news, you get news. If you want reality, you get all that. That's like a cable bundle. And now you can see there are streaming services that are probably going to start bundling. So when you have Max, Max is now Discovery Plus and HBO Max is Max. Now they're adding, they're thinking about integrating AMC into that. They're putting CNN on Max or some CNN content on Max. You know, you can get a discounted price on Hulu if you get ESPN and Disney Disney Plus Plus at the same time. So you're going to start seeing that where if you pay a bundled price, you get get more options, right? And so- that was what made one of the things that made linear television really successful. And the thinking is that that streaming is going to have to embrace that because the margins aren't there for all these products to succeed on a standalone basis. Yeah. So we'll see. There's this tendency for companies, you know, they're so focused on the bottom line that they maybe lose sight of the consumer. And sometimes I'm not naming any names, but like they'll take a great business model and they'll just kill it themselves yeah, because yeah. they can't stop themselves yeah. from like in, inserting ads in all different ways and raising the prices to the point where people started cutting the cord 10, 15 years ago. It wasn't because the content of the programming was necessarily bad. It was because the cost became so high and there were so many ads. Yes. And then Netflix was a wonderful you know, alternative to that. It was like 10 bucks a month, watch as much as you want. There's all kinds of content, no advertising. Now the pendulum is swinging back where there's all these different fractured streaming services if you want to watch a show, you may have to have one of seven different services, and now they're starting to implement ads in them. So it's like going back to where we were, what the problem was with with cable. We're basically going back to the same thing with like a cooler device, right? Like on Apple TV, there's probably a world where it's not only just Disney Plus, ESPN, and Hulu. Potentially, I could bundle in like six other platforms in there and have different rates for them if they come to some agreement that, hey, add Primeout Plus into there, add this into there. I would rather pay one and know everything I have, this is just me, than freaking have like eight different ones and not know where they are and how to cancel them, just from like a consumer standpoint. Right. I get that that actually works on the other side because it's like, I think half the people don't even know they have a subscription. I'm not saying it's half, but I'm sure there's some people that just don't know they have a subscription. No, there's actually like apps that manage that for you that like will tell you all the different things you're you're paying right. for and will like cancel <laughs> right. things for you, but it's tough. Yeah, I, I think an interesting angle here, and like I've been learning a lot about the gaming industry recently, and I was listening to a podcast, Constructor of Fun. And it's interesting when you think about this problem around content and how Netflix is potentially like 
looking or getting into gaming and building games around their IP, like Love Island and some of these other IPs that they have. And they're building these like mobile games and these free to play games around them. There's some interesting things around uh, Epic Games that has the Unreal Engine that produces like produces games like Fortnite and a bunch of other games that people can build on the Unreal Engine. And like, could you create other content or UGC content around that and make it entertaining? All of it's a little bit unclear, but it is an interesting angle. And I see more and more people potentially or, or more and more platforms like that looking into it because one, they don't get into these issues of potentially like strikes and you know the cost of production when you could have user generated content and potentially do something with that. I mean, SAG technically is, they do have a video game agreement. So if you wanted SAG actors to render voiceover oh, okay, or motion enough, capture, that would still be impacted by the strike. But I, I get your but like point. Minecraft I mean, I do a, and stuff, you know what I mean? Where it's like, there's no voices in it. Yeah, if they're not using yeah. talent, like actors, you wouldn't have to deal with that. And I do a lot of gaming work. I mean, the thing is, it's not a direct translation. So if you're a good content studio, that doesn't necessarily mean you're a good gaming studio. Yes. 100%. And there have been a lot of companies that have been trying to crack that gaming business without success. And so, you know, for example, there's a, a huge, almost $3 trillion company that had to buy a huge gaming company just to, you know, get into gaming because they had tried for years and years to build their own native ecosystem. It didn't take off. So they bought one. And Netflix has been looking for ways, you know, they saw the writing on the wall years ago that they weren't going to be able to maintain their subscribers, especially with all the competitive streaming services coming online. So they were like, how do we, let's get into gaming. Yes. And so I think it was a wise thing for them to do and maybe inevitable, but I don't know if they're necessarily going to be as good at that as they were at content in, in the 2010s. Totally agree. And I think it's part of the critique from this podcast I was listening to is that, you know, building games is still really, really hard. Like these games that they're building for they have their to be IP, fun. they have to be fun. They have to be engaging. What's the monetization strategy? It's, it's, I've actually, there's this book, there's so many good reads on this stuff about how hard it is to create and make a game. And even this, the difference between the types of, what like was that Apple show? Uh, Mythic Quest. Mythic Quest is the, Mythic is Quest, the Apple yeah. show. There's the book Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow, which is a New York Times bestseller. That's a, about a story about these two people who build a game with each other. There's a really good book called uh, Blood, Pixels and Tears, which is like the behind the scenes of making games like Diablo 3 and Age of Empires and a bunch of these other games. It's pretty fascinating to what goes into that. And to your point, like it is not the same. Even when we think about tech, like building a tech product, you can make a beautiful tech product. It's not the same as building a beautiful like game design UI. And then the same thing with like, if I'm really good at making movies, am I good at potentially making a TV show? If I'm good at a TV show, can I make a good video game? They're not really connected in that way. But I do see people like potentially like looking into it. On the other side, Nintendo has been successful recently with like the IP making movies. making movies. Yeah, being good at one doesn't necessarily guarantee you success in the other arena, right. but it having IP gives you a fan base, which helps you sell tickets. Yes, yes. One other update on the the strikes because we saw the strikes been going on for almost over four months. And now some studios are starting to suspend their showrunners, their non-writing EPs. So there was announcements this this past week that Greg Berlanti, Mindy Kaling, J.J. Abrams were suspended, Donald Glover, Lisa Joy, Jonah Nolan, handful of others. Paramount hasn't suspended their their two biggest showrunners yet, but you're starting to see that, right? And in the reality, the reality is like the writers and actors that haven't been working for for months, those who are not necessarily the superstars in the industry 
they've been experiencing a lot of pain, you know, like evictions, not being able to pay their mortgages, like, and they have families, they have to put food on the table somehow. So that's, that's really challenging. But now it's starting to impact even the stars, the, the leading showrunners that people who are on overall deals at studios, because there's nothing to make. When they say suspend, were they on some type of retainer or something like that? Or yeah. So if you're on like an output deal or an overall deal, typically you get, you know, it'll be for a term of years and your job is to like oversee, come up with show ideas, oversee post, uh, hire you're getting paid staff, the writers. Yeah, you're, you're paid like a weekly amount to do that. You're not an employee, but you're, you're on the lot. You have an office there. And even if a show isn't actually in production, it's because you have so many different projects going on. You might have a show in pre-production, a show in production, a show in post. So you're there running a creative empire, a mini creative empire on the studio lot. So you're just producing stuff, coming up with ideas. When we're not in a strike scenario, they're getting paid with the writers. But when there's a strike and the writers aren't getting paid, they're still rendering production. Yeah. And a lot of those people are people that the studios want to be in business with when the strike is over, right? Because they have great connections, they have great talent, they can come up with scripts, but they don't necessarily need to write everything. They can just like set up a show and delegate it to writers. And so these people are the creative engines for these studios and they're being suspended because there's nothing to make, not necessarily terminated. That is, you know, in the contracts, like in typical deals like this, there's some sort of force majeure clause. It says, you know, if there's a force majeure event, which like a strike would qualify that goes on for X amount of days, call it 30 days, 90 days, whatever, then either party can terminate, right? Or they can suspend, which means that, that it'll resume when whatever event that's triggering this pause, when that goes away, then the agreement goes back into effect. Sometimes they can only suspend if they suspend X, Y, Z, other people. So there's all these different permutations, but suspension is just a less offensive way of cutting payment without terminating. Right, 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 right. right. That makes Because the studios, they do, they're looking at the cost. Well, they can't just be paying to sit there right? because they can't do work. Not forever. No, and it makes sense. I mean, it makes sense. It just means more and more like something's got to happen here because it's not like studios can keep milking this either. Like if they have nothing to put out there, I mean, if that's their business. So who knows? I mean, it's been four months. I don't know how much longer this could go, but it seems like it could go. It could keep going. Last week, WGA actually said that they would recommend that the legacy studios just break off from the streamers because the legacy studios who've been used to residuals and been used to sort of- Like a Fox or a Universal? Yeah, or even, you know, like there are studios that have streaming arms and non-streaming arms, traditional networks. They own networks. They make network TV. They also make streaming TV. And the network model and the cable model has been very used to paying residuals, having transparency in that regard um, for- writers. And what the WGA is saying is like, let's just cut the streamers out. Let's make content. The legacy media companies, the networks, they've been willing to at least engage on some of the things we've been proposing or most of the things we've been proposing. It's really the streamers that have never really had to bow down Mm. to paying residuals or sharing data or any of that, they're the ones that the WGA is viewing as the biggest impediment to a deal getting done. So that would be just pure streamers would be your Netflixes, your Apples, your Amazon Primes in this in this yeah. case. In this case. Now, the AMPTP said they released a statement that they're united and that they're not going to let the WGA divide them and that they think that they're on the verge of a good agreement. It's just that the WGA needs to come back to the table or something. I don't know. I mean, it's been going on for a long time. 
I think when you and I started talking about it, we said, even with Hassan in that episode, that there's a lot of issues of first impression that haven't really been addressed, yeah. you know, data sharing, AI, yeah. things like that. We need to put our thinking caps on. Everyone does. It is pretty complicated. It is not something you can just kind of come up with overnight. I mean, you as a lawyer, right? Like someone presents something, someone strikes it up, someone sends it back, goes back and forth. Then you negotiate, you talk about it, you go back and forth. I mean, I can see that taking a pretty long time. Well, you know, one thing that could could work, which I don't know if anyone suggested, is like, you know, baseball arbitration. So it's like you guys, that both sides appoint a, a neutral arbitrator and they put their each of their proposals forward, and then the arbitrator has to pick between one or the other, okay. and you have to live with that. Okay. So it's like when you can't, when two sides can't come to the middle, right, right, right. They let an arbitrator pick between one of the two options. So you're saying bring in an arbitrator? Maybe that's the next step. I don't know. You heard it here first. Then they have to agree on who they bring in, right? Well, that should, yeah, that would have to be some panel of like retired entertainment law professors or someone, or, you know, something. I don't know. AI. People. That's interesting. You can have a panel. That's interesting. Um, that sort of does it. But the thing with the baseball style arbitration is you don't want your proposal to be unreasonable because then it won't get picked. Right. So it forces right. everyone to make like a reasonable proposal. Huh. Well, I'm sure it might get to that because like we just said, I mean, we're running out of stuff to watch and uh, we're waiting on some new stuff to come out. Right. And that's not happening anytime soon. So they need to figure it out. And uh, hopefully, hopefully something happens. But in the meantime, we'll keep reporting on it. Good breakdown as always, Paul. That's our show for this week, folks. Make sure not only do you watch the finals, the U.S. Open, but you get your tickets to Taylor Swift. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us at Better Call Paul the Podcast, Instagram, TikTok. Follow me on Twitter at Mesh Lakani, or sorry, follow me on X at Mesh Lakani, formerly known as Twitter. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.